Welcome, welcome everybody. I am your host of the People and Culture podcast. It's Marcus Sawyer. And today, I'm glad you could join me because I'm accompanied by a very special guest, Cynthia Hansen. Cynthia has had a fantastic career. She has spent time teaching in Japan and she now leads the Innovation Foundation at one of the largest recruitment companies in the world. In between that, she was at the World Economic Forum and she just has a breadth of knowledge and also a completely global perspective. She's worked in many countries and part of the work she's doing today is really around unlocking the hidden genius and making sure that those that are in their local communities and their local environments have the chance to support them even if they do go on to conquer the world they come back to their communities and support so we talk about that we talk about diversity and inclusion building cultures and also some of the gems she got from one of her mentors who happens to be the chairman of one of the largest organizations in the news industry today so again i'm glad you could listen if you're getting any inspiration please let us know we love to hear from our listeners and share the podcast as they say like and subscribe and i hope you enjoy this episode Cynthia Hansen, great to have you here today. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. I'm so excited about this conversation and also just really catching up with you on some of the work that you've been doing so far. And yeah, really looking forward to sharing some of your wisdom and knowledge around innovation, creating scale, culture, and learning a little bit more about what is your main passion so again thanks for being here pleasure thanks fantastic well why don't we just take it from the top so one of the things that i noticed although you're leading a big part and a really important part of innovation foundation today and you're based out in switzerland you started in japan as a teacher <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> so, uh, that was a couple jobs in Right. Yeah. So so tell me, how does how do you move from being a teacher in Japan all the way through to leading a an innovation unit for one of the largest organizations um, in the world today? So tell me a little bit about that, that that journey. Sure. So it's not a straightforward path, which actually I think makes it more interesting. And this is often something I talk about with people that I mentor that. You don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. And it's that comfort with ambiguity that makes a really interesting ride. So actually, even before teaching in Japan, when I finished university, I spent about a year running the back office of a small design firm, which was wow. a fascinating look into how you run a small business and actually what was exciting and what was scary about running a small business. So that was a great way to just jump into the business world and be responsible from, for everything from payroll to taxes to advertising to everything. And so that was, that was a fun leap from there. 
into then teaching in Japan, which was totally different. So that was part of the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, which is actually under the Japanese government. They take people from all over the world and place them in Japanese schools to team teach alongside Japanese teachers with the idea of giving cultural context to language learning. So it's not just something you memorize out of a textbook. Yeah. It's something that you do live, which was really fun. Really interesting. It, it, so you may or may not know this, but my, my cousin's in Japan. So I oh, have, really? yeah, he's been there for uh, just over 11 years now. So a big part of my family is Japanese now. So he's got four kids. Oh. So I've been there a few times. Um, not only to Tokyo, but down to Fukuoka, Tamagashima, and a few other areas as well. So, yeah, re- really interesting. And so you mentioned that you were you got involved in small business early, and you had an idea of how everything worked inside a company. Tell me a little bit more about that experience. What? How do you think that's helped you to set yourself up for what you're working on today, even? So I think actually having that insight into small business made me think a lot about strategy. If you're a very small business, so this was basically a one-woman show whose office I, I ran, and then she worked with some external providers. But the idea was there was no slack. You yeah. had to be responsible for everything. So it meant that you had to learn how to do everything up to a manageable level. So what I learned there was to plan really well, to be strategic, to use the resources to accomplish what, what needed to be done, not waste anything, and to just really focus on the few things that were going to move the business forward. Yeah. And I think that actually served me then in every job I had after that. So when I try to explain to people what my career trajectory has been, it's been primarily around startup scale up or turnaround and all of those have things in common and that you have to be really clear what you're trying to achieve you have to marshal really limited resources and then focus in on the few things that are going to make a difference yeah no got it and, and when you say no slack you don't mean the tool you mean the fact that the business is lean right the business is very lean yeah 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 so everybody's kind of chipping in into certain areas and it gives you a, a, a wider overview so Teaching in Japan, also having an overview of small business. And then what was what was the next journey for you after that? Yeah. So when I came back from Japan, A, I knew I did not want to be a teacher. Right. But B, I knew that I wanted to do something that was related to connecting people and the idea of building bridges. And so I actually went to work for an international teacher exchange program, which was the chance to be on the opposite side of basically the same relationship. So right. I had gone to Japan as a teacher, as an exchange teacher, and, and had been handheld by an amazing program. Then I went to work for a program that was bringing teachers from all over the world into the US. So it was completely on the other side. Interesting. And it also, it gave me the sense of what does it take to run a program like that? And what works and what doesn't work? And how do you learn along the way? So, so, so this again, this is like a variety of different types of experiences. And like you said at the start, it wasn't a straight path. And so then after you've done that, um, and obviously we've had discussions around this, you were working for WEF at some point, a little bit later down in the journey. Was that right after or were there, there steps in between that? 
There were a couple steps in between. So yeah. when I left the teacher exchange program, I wanted to stay in exchange and the idea of citizen exchange. Yeah. So I went to work for a public-private partnership, which was really interesting because it was the first time I got to work really directly with government. So that program is a U.S. State Department program called the International Visitor Program. And it brings high-level professional exchange participants to the U.S., yep. introduces them to their professional counterparts with the idea that they build bridges. So, you know, you come as a doctor, a lawyer, a researcher, an entrepreneur, a tech expert, and you come to the U.S. and you get connected with your counterparts. Got it. So I ran that for, for a few years, which also kind of built my belief that actually you needed to connect people and find ways to kind of build commonality across people, across cultures, across experiences. But it was also another case of turning something around that was pretty good, but actually could be a lot better and that had some holes in it. Yep. And so again, it was looking at what I had to play with, figuring out what could be different or be better, figuring out a strategy, and then being really lean and, and kind of agile along the way to make it better. And but so each of these things ended up being pretty fundamentally different from what they were in the beginning. What, what, so you, you mentioned something there that's, that's really interesting and just being in a world of diversity and inclusion, we often think about diversity as the differences um, and you talked about commonalities. Tell me a little bit more about why you think that's important as far as finding commonalities and what you've learned from approaching business in that way. So I think commonalities are a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think they are amazing when you find something that you can connect with somebody about. And you, if you're really good, you can connect with anybody. Right. So you find something that's in common, something that you care about, something that's a common goal, and that's how you can mobilize people. But at the same time, you can have kind of fake commonalities. So yeah. I've worked in a, a number of places, I'm sure you have as well, where, you know, yes, you have diversity and inclusion, uh, on the surface, you have, you know, people with different skin colors or different genders or different ages. But when you scratch the surface, they're all from the same universities. They're all from the same social strata. They all come from the same kind of basic business mindset. So what you're missing there is that cognitive diversity. So, yes, you can have commonality, but the commonality might actually be kind of papering over the fact that you don't have enough diversity to actually be innovative, to be provocative, to stretch people's thinking and therefore to have a, a richer kind of result. So do you, do you think about diversity not only, as you mentioned, being something that is visual that we can see, but it's also around the, the talents, information, background and experience that's hidden? Very much, very much so. And, and you're right when you say that it's hidden. Because so often there are people with transversal skills, with transferable skills, who may not even know that they have those. And quite often the thing that's a barrier is having employers or even hiring managers at that level who are willing to take a chance on a non-traditional candidate. Right. So, for example, when I was at the World Economic Forum, I needed a new team coordinator. So this is sort of a, an admin plus kind of role that processes and systems improvement and things. And, sure. and I did a search and the World Economic Forum tends to attract lots of really bright young people with master's degrees you know, who, um, who are looking for a foot in the door. 
and they may or may not stay in that kind of entry level position because they're often looking to move up. Right. But I had this fantastic woman apply who actually was a little bit older, a bit more experienced, had about 10 years of work experience, and she came out of hotel management. And she had never worked in the kind of corporate setting that the World Economic Forum offered. And she didn't have any admin work, but she, she had run a budget, she had run a team, she knew how to deal with the public, she knew how to troubleshoot, she could solve problems. She was always calm and you know, utterly professional. And she was the best team coordinator I ever hired. She was amazing. But she wouldn't have gone through a traditional screening. She now, in this day and age, probably wouldn't have gone through AI algorithms, would have screened her out. And so it's just a matter of looking for those transferable skills and being willing to take a chance on the person. Why did you take a chance? What was motivating you to take a chance on that person? She impressed me because she was very upfront about what she had and what she didn't have and why she was willing to learn and what was trainable. And how, how did she get to your, your quote unquote doorstep, so to speak? How did you find her in the first place if she wouldn't have passed through the screening? So at that point, she did come through in the long list of applicants that I got from HR. Right. But she wasn't put forward as one of the top applicants. Got so it. I only found her because I read all of the applications. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that's another point as well. Also making sure that people are a little bit more diligent when someone applies for a role, they've taken their time in order to do that. And I think that's something that HR finds a little bit challenging, especially in the, the current market where they get overwhelmed with a lot of applications. And then it's like, how do you sort through? Do you have a way of doing that that you think about where there's an, a way for you to sort through initially like what's like a, a complete yes and a complete no when you glance on a, re a resume one of the things that i really look for is did that person create impact in the yeah. last job yeah what i don't want is a laundry list of i'm marcus and i did these 15 things in that job what i want is i saw a problem i took this action this is how it was different by the time i left yeah Yep. And very few people do that. And so either I look for someone who has framed it in that way, not in a self-promotional way, but in a here's the impact way, or someone who has experiences that show uh, the ability to learn and you know a, a growth mindset, an agile mindset, because you can't train those things as easily as you can hard skills. I don't care you know, if you're an Excel whiz. I care that you can look at information, look for the gaps and come to me with a, a set of problems and solutions. Yeah, got it. So again, so kind of on competencies and traits and capacity, curiosity, those types of things. And and I, we talk about, and I talk about that a lot um, because uh, sometimes people don't get the chance or the opportunity to display those. So thinking about kind of bringing you towards the present day now and in the way that you look at resumes, you look for problem solvers and you're really trying to tackle some of the, the biggest problems that exist today. So tell me and the audiences a little bit more about like what you're working on right now and what the Innovation Foundation actually is. So the Innovation Foundation is the corporate foundation of the ADECO group. So we are a corporate foundation in terms of the way we're set up and the way we're governed, but we operate really at the, the farthest fringes of what a corporate foundation can be, at least in Switzerland. 
So we've set ourselves up as a social innovation lab. So we're not a granting foundation. We're not a typical programming foundation. So we don't give away money. Um, we don't just run programs. What we do instead is we look for who's falling out of the workforce. Why are they falling out of the workforce? So that's our scanning process. Then we bring together the right players, including end users, to build solutions, like real solutions to the problems that we've identified. And that's the build phase. And then we take those most promising solutions and we build them into products. And that's the scale phase. Got it. So it's really about seeing a problem, working with the right actors to come up with a solution, and then building that solution into something that is viable and go out into the world, you know, and, and exit the foundation. So it doesn't need to sit with us. Yeah. And it's really, that's the, that's the magic formula. And, and so what, what would be an example of a problem that you've been working on that has, in your opinion and the opinion of others, had a, had a significant impact? So we're still along the journey, yeah. but the project that was for this long right now is one we're doing in Mexico, where we wanted to tackle the problem of youth and youth who are not in employment, education, or training, youth who have basically fallen out of the system. Right. And so we looked at young people who are not in school, not in work, living at or below the poverty line on the urban fringe. And then we looked even more deeply at young mothers because they don't have a lot of time. They have a lot of resource constraints. And we looked at what are the real problems? Why are they so far away from work? And in that case, in the context of these young mothers living out of the below the poverty line in Mexico, they were being told that by getting pregnant young, usually single, they had completely ruined their lives and any chance of not only having a job, but having a career. Who tells them and, this? Who's, who's been saying uh, that to them? They were being told this by, by teachers, by members wow. of their community, by members of their family by potential employers, basically by everybody. Wow. And they just felt that they didn't know who to trust. They didn't know what information was correct. And nobody was giving them hope, let alone a roadmap for how they could even think about work. So they, for a lot of them, they, they weren't even thinking about any kind of job, maybe some sort of informal job, like sure. oh, I could be a cook, I could be a cleaner. Those are the options that were being offered to them. Wow. And the reason behind that is the, why, why is that happening? Yeah. It, yeah. Part of it is, is um, pretty conservative culture. Some of it is the influence of Catholicism. Certainly that's changed over time. Yeah. And I think from what we heard from them, some of it is a sense of punishment. Like this is your choice. You know, you you made this choice and therefore this wow. is your punishment that you are going to. They even were being told things like you are just a mother. That's that's your life forever. You will just be a mother as if being a mother was somehow not enough. And even more horribly, the idea that being a mother was some kind of punishment. Wow. So focusing on really bringing some of those people into the, the workforce in a meaningful way I imagine that will have a significant amount of impact on their themselves like personally confidence the family there'll be representation as well right um where you start to see others that are doing something that's 
not just as they say just right doing exactly what what, what people say what, what people expect you to do based on your environment that yeah that's that's super impactful so a lot of the work that you're doing is it's really tackling big problems mm-hmm. what's the biggest challenge that you come across like in your work whether that's internally or externally what's what's like the hardest thing to overcome to to get this kind of work done because it's not easy it is definitely not easy and i, I think the biggest problem is scale mm-hmm. so once we've worked in this case with the young mothers and with ngos and experts and tech companies on the ground to come up with a handful of solutions. Okay, we have these solutions. Now we're gonna build them out. So we've gone through scan, we've gone through build to come up with the solutions. And now we're into scale. And scale is basically building them out into viable products that one of the partners will take forward. That's where it's tricky. You don't know, like any kind of accelerator, any kind of incubator, you don't know if what you're building is really going to be successful. So we've got two venture teams going right now. They're actually on the ground in Mexico this week. Nice. One of them is building a social campaign. And this is based around credible information for these girls from someone who looks like them, sounds like them. You know, not some distant government official, but someone from the community, someone who's had a similar lived experience. So that's what they need is someone to tell them in a, in a guiding and um, peer sort of way this is possible. You could have a job. You could have a future in the world of work. So that's one of the tech solution, or one of the solutions. The other one is a tech solution that is based on technology that will translate your lived experience into employable skills, things that will be recognized in the job market. Amazing. And, so it's not just yeah. so it's not just looking at your work history. It's taking what you've learned from just being able to live and survive and and thrive exactly. in some cases. That's really interesting. And, and that, they those... don't have a work experience. They have no work experience. If you have nothing, you yeah. would show up in a traditional CD. Yeah. How can you have confidence that you've got something to bring to the table? Yeah. Super interesting. So some of the challenges you mentioned, kind of getting scale and driving, I suppose, these solutions, not in just one area, but in multiple areas. How do you how do you think you'll go about tackling that moving forward? What are some of the ideas that, that you've had or are there any calls to action for people listening to this or maybe where they could support? Sure. So the idea is that by the time we get to the end of the second sprint, we've got a couple of really viable products that will probably be taken forward by one of the partners in the, in the project. The idea is, so say you take the campaign, we'll scale that campaign in Mexico. And if it works in Mexico, we'll look at how you would need to tweak it to take it out into other Latin American countries. The other thing we'll do after we've tested it in several markets is look at what other communities or what other target audiences might that be beneficial for? Why could you not take that idea of someone who looks like me, sounds like me, and apply it to indigenous communities. Right. Could you do it for youth offenders? Could you do it for um, older people trying to come back into the workforce? You could do it for all different communities where the thing that's lacking is confirmation from someone who looks like me, sounds like me, that it can actually be done, that I can imagine that kind of future for myself. That's got almost limitless possibilities. So what we'll be looking for then is 
other organizations, other people who have a foothold in different communities who would be willing to take that and test it out and see if it has legs. Yeah, I got it. So from what you said earlier as well, connections are a big part of what you do. And I imagine in this this world, part of driving these solutions is ensuring that you've got the right places to connect people to once you have maybe helped them, whether it's get that confidence, understand what their skills are and being able to market those skills. How do you how do you go about building connections and why are connections so important if you if you believe they are? I think it comes back to this idea of being anchored. So with these young women, they've got amazing resources in their own communities. The idea is not to pull them out of the community and point them to some online training by somebody in, in Switzerland, but actually to reconnect them with the resources that are in their community, role models, mentors, teachers, other people. So in order to do that in a credible way, it means that we need to build those relationships and we need to do it coming through people who are already in the community. So with the, the peace in Mexico, we've partnered with two amazing NGOs. One is Plan International, who has a really good foothold in Mexico. And the other one is Youth Build Mexico. That's a network of NGOs working specifically on youth and employment. So those are the folks who are on the ground, who understand the context much better than we could, who have the connections, who can bring in people from government, business, civil society, can bring in the young mothers on the ground in a totally credible and inclusive way. We could never do this without yeah. those partners, but you have to be careful about the partners and why they're in it, that they're in it for the right reason. Right, right. And, and, you, and so one of the things you mentioned was obviously around the mentors. So if just switching gears slightly, who've been some of the big mentors for you that have helped you to get to where you are? And what, what did they provide do you think in terms of helping you achieve some of the goals that you've had? I've been lucky to have some really amazing mentors and I, some of them have been direct bosses. Others have been people external. I think you need um, a mix of both. So actually one of the bosses that I, that has been an ongoing mentor as well um, is Pierce Cumberledge, who, for whom I worked at the World Economic Forum. And he was amazing because he, he helped me to refine what my own vision was and what my goals were. And then he got out of the way and yeah. he, he gave me air cover where I needed it. He gave me profile where it would be helpful, but he didn't micromanage or step in where he wasn't helpful. And so I, I try to replicate that with my own teams as much as I can. So I think that was a really good example of someone who was a more hands-on mentor and and then um, I've had as an ongoing mentor for many years, Peter Grauer, who's the chairman of Bloomberg, uh, who has been fantastic in terms of giving me a really macro view of the world of business and um, where decision making happens at the world of business. Uh, and then also, you know, some of the challenges that people at the very top really struggle with. And he's also been great about listening to me and, and what I'm trying to achieve and then opening doors and making connections with people that he thinks could not only be helpful, but actually kind of steer my thinking in a different way. Yeah. Open up that idea of cognitive diversity, people that I would never have met otherwise, sure. who can really contribute to to thinking and decision making at that level too. 
Really interesting. So you've had, as you mentioned, some fantastic mentors have been able to, I suppose, provide perspective from different lenses, also challenge your thinking, but give you that space, right? Um, And so uh, thinking about organizations and some of the work that you're doing, I suppose, as part of a bigger organization, but outside of it, you must see things that companies could bring in to their organizations in order to enhance their culture and have a culture where it ultimately, and talk about DNI as a superpower, but a culture that empowers their business to thrive and the individuals to thrive. What are maybe one or two things that you think companies should be doing more of, or even doing th- doing well today, that that are worth mentioning? I think uh, the ability to mirror at the top the mix that you want and ideally to mirror your stakeholder mix is huge and I don't think many organizations actually do that I think that's the ultimate of walking the talk if your if your board if your executive team really mirrors who your stakeholders are I think that goes an enormous way and uh, so I think that's one I think another piece is about building pipeline and I get really tired of the complaint, ah, there aren't enough women, there aren't enough people of color, there aren't enough people with disabilities, blah, blah, blah. And you're not looking hard enough. There are lots of amazingly talented people out there. You just have to change the way you're looking. And you have to be a a truly welcoming place to work or else those people are just not going to take the time to look at you as an employer. Absolutely. I think they've got to change that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that the, the people exist. I mean, was it seven point what billion people in the world today? Mm-hmm. And you're telling me that you can't find diverse talent. Exactly. Now, it's it's there's a business there, right? It's a good decent business for us because we can help you get access to that talent. But I think what you'd mentioned is really important is how you perceive mm-hmm. the talent, the perception mm-hmm. and what you're looking for when you're hiring, like the the example of the person that you'd hired inside the organization previously. The background, I think, gives you some context to ex- some experience, but it's all about competencies and traits, really. Exactly. And, and trainability. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned that earlier, and I think that's a great one. Um, curiosity, trainability, be a, a bit willing to learn as well, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. It's that but, mindset. It's very hard to train mindset. Y- yeah. Yeah. We, and uh, I've seen it a lot with athletes in particular who have a specific type of mindset where they're disciplined, dedicated, understand that they're in competition when they're in business. So that that's that's another area. And I know you've done some work in that field as well, mm-hmm. right? We, we mm-hmm. were talking about that a few years ago. Are you still doing things in, uh, in that space or is it a bit more focused on some of the projects that you mentioned before? So what we've actually done is take the curriculum that we had developed for athletes and figure out where else could it be applied, right. which is that idea of transversality that I, that I absolutely love. So we had done that piece of work that you remember, which was about codifying the eight traits that athletes bring um, where, that actually are then directly applicable to the world of business. What are some of those traits? That, that's, yeah. I have to jump in there. So you've got to give me some of those <laughs> sure. traits. I'm not going to ask you for all eight, at least four. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the ability to um, to give and receive feedback. Yep. 
the ability to be self-disciplined and goal-oriented. Yeah. The ability to um, to basically promote yourself and kind of market yourself is important because it means that you can frame the skills that you have and convince somebody of it. And then to be a team player as well, to understand how you fit within a team is yep. really key. So those are those were really some of the top ones that we had pulled out. It's interesting. A few weeks ago, I was in Austin and I was in the hotel lobby. I was at the bar watching, I can't remember, I was watching one of the basketball games and then somebody sat next to me and they were talking to someone else and they mentioned that they're a commentator. So they're a commentator for ESPN now, but historically they've been a professional volleyball player for like 30 years. So we had that conversation of the transition even into the business world because now ESPN is a corporation. Obviously, it's different mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, in a sense that there's a sports focus. But the thing that you mentioned around being able to give and receive feedback, I think that is really, really important. Um, and I think that gets overlooked. And feedback is a gift. And obviously, it's sometimes hard to take. And in the sports world, you want to get feedback from people that you respect that's another mm-hmm. thing you don't just take feedback from fans if you took feedback from fans all the time and you're playing in front of fifty thousand people that's hard but i think inside of an organization being able to deliver that feedback um in a way that will land so people can understand and go away and train is super important i think that the parallel piece there is being able to critique your own performance think about well, yeah. how much professional athletes you know watch you know recordings of themselves they analyze everything that they've done they look at what could have been different what could have been better they do the mental training they replay matches or races in their heads they 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 run through them before the competition so all of that is amazing in terms of being able to look at your own performance and then figure out what you do to make it better yeah lots of people don't do that uh really insightful i think just Having that, having that ability to reflect is, mm-hmm. is 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 so important because then you can kind of change things, move forward, and then start to transform. So, what what's the what's the one thing about your job that you do today that you love? Because every time I see you, you've got uh. a smile on your face, and you must be <laughs> there must be something that you love around your job. <laughs> I love being able to build yeah this is when when i did the reflection on what i've liked best about the jobs i've had over time it's that ability to build which is not just building stuff but it's building with people for people so that's the best part of my job is figuring out what do we want to change what should be different in the world who do we need to marshal and what resources do we need human social financial what kind of resources to make that happen then how do you bring people together, create the right mix and the right environment so that magic happens? Yeah. And it's that that hope that magic happens that makes me so happy about this job. That's why I love what I do. And is that what makes the foundation magical itself, that hope? I think so. I think yeah. so. We, we are truly doing something that no one else is doing out of a corporate foundation. No one is doing it in this particular way. We've learned from lots of other models. We're not making up anything from scratch, but it's just that it's like a slightly different recipe that's going to have a different result. And I I love the freedom also to just play 
and create things and it won't all work and that's okay uh, but just the the luxury of being able to do that within the environment of a big organization and an organization that's willing to take that kind of risk a board that's willing to take that kind of risk is just heavenly yeah yeah we we've actually covered a lot of ground and I'm I'm thinking as we're having this conversation obviously but some of the things that I think are super important as you mentioned like mirroring at the top um I did have a question on that because as you said that how do you mirror right at the top when maybe as you said earlier people don't have that experience is it about companies taking more chances on those that might not have that experience either in a board level and giving them that opportunity? Do you think that's going to be more beneficial for organizations if they do that in that way, or is it another approach? I think it's a yes and. I think if you get the right person who has enough of the trainable and transferable skills, take a chance on that person, particularly maybe in a board role where what you want is that different perspective and the different kind of, uh, of skills and competencies. But in maybe a more operational world, then I think a lot of it is building the right pipeline so yeah. that you're training the types of people that you want and giving people at kind of mid-level the chance to really stretch and do something different. So one of the things we've just piloted now is actually secondment. So that as we put together those venture teams, we're opening this up to pull people in from different parts of the ADECO group to work with us for six months. You know, get that experience of working in a venture team, building something new, and working in, a, in an environment that has a lot of ambiguity, working in a not-for-profit environment as well. And, you know, for many people who have gone a very standard business track, that's completely out of your comfort yeah, zone. absolutely. So if we can do that and then send people back to the teams where the, where, from, that we borrowed them from, then that's great. We're seeding the rest of the company with this kind of mindset, this kind of, of behavior, this, this way of working. So that's something that I think we can, we can add value to the company and stretch the company and build the pipeline of people who will think differently that ultimately will rise to the top. Yeah. Wow. So we, yeah, again, we've covered a lot of ground. We're kind of coming up to the tail end of optimal podcast in time. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed just like obviously reconnecting, having conversations and learning about your journey and some of the nuggets that you've left and gems that I'm sure organizations are thinking about how they build inclusive culture and also how they could potentially change their perspective and hire will, will really, really value. Is there anything, Cynthia, that you want to leave the audience with, whether that is your mantra, things that have inspired you or anything at all that's that, that that's on your mind right now i would love people to be aware that everything we do is open source that this is actually if there's a mantra that i try to live by and try to instill in, in the foundation the idea is you know learn and share because the more we share all of our learnings all of our experience the things that went well the things that didn't go well the more others can pick it up and use it, adopt it, change it into something else. And I think with that idea of open sourcing goes the idea of not being precious. It will change, it will become something else. The things that we've incubated and spun off will become something else and that's okay. As long as we've been additive, I think that's the most important thing. So open source things, share everything you can and make sure that you're additive. Well, 
this has been a fantastic discussion. I've definitely learned tons because you've shared a lot. So I appreciate you living by that mantra. And I'm sure that this will be an episode that people are really interested in and get a lot from. So thanks for taking the time, Cynthia. My pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you, Marcus. All right. Cheers. Catch up soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.